This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Coming up on this episode, milestone episode, by the way, number 200 of the future award-winning Analytics podcast. I'm going to throw a big curveball at you guys. No sports guest today. Although there's going to be plenty of sports talk to be had. Big time episode calls for a big time guest. And I got one today. I'm going to have the three term now. Erie County Executive Mark Holenkars is going to be on the pod with me today. I'm going to let you know this too right off the bat. If you want to hear his takes on Trump, today's government, economics, foreign policy, all that stuff. Uh Uh-uh. Not happening. Take yourself somewhere else. Not going to be the interview for you. Instead, what we're going to do today is take a nice look, a very rare one, inside the life of Mark. We'll go all the way back to his growing up in Lackawanna. We'll discuss what first got him interested in public service, how that journey all began, what it took to get there. I'll ask him a bunch of questions about the actual process of public service. And of course, we're going to talk plenty of sports, which I'm going to be honest with you, did not know. Mark is a very legit sports guy. Lots of politicians talk sports, say they like sports. They don't know anything about him. I can promise you this, not the case with Mark at all. We talk about his beloved LA Dodgers, lots of golf, some hockey. We'll discuss his newish book, which details keeping the Buffalo Bills in Buffalo. We'll talk about new stadium renovation scenarios. We'll end with a traditional mini lighting round, which we always do much more. Great interview with a guy who, I'm going to be honest with you, far more personable than I thought he'd be going into it. The Erie County Executive, I'll have that for you in just a few minutes. Before that, I want to let you know that today's show is being supported by 26 Shirts. At 26 Shirts, a different Buffalo-themed design is sold every two weeks. Then that shirt is gone. Here's the cool part. For every single shirt that they sell, a donation is made to that specific campaign each and every single time, every single shirt sold. Since 2013, their designs have managed to raise and donate several hundred thousand dollars. Incredible. Del Reed, his crew, they do such an amazing job enriching the lives of so many people. It's great to see. Not to mention, these are outstanding looking design t-shirts. They're very comfortable, very sporty to wear. I have several of these shirts, wear them out all the time. Head on over to 26shirts.com and see what cause needs you this week. And on that note, let's do it. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right, everyone, how you doing? Episode 200, Moranalytics Podcast. Thank you, everyone out there, as always, for continuing to listen, download the podcast. It means a lot to me. And I mean, look, I'm very reflective today. 200 episodes now of this podcast in the bank. It's been a lot of fun, a lot more fun than I imagined it would be when I launched about two years or so ago. It's also been a lot of work. A lot more work than I ever thought it was going to be. Been cranking out two of these per week now for the better part of the past two years. And it's been, it it continues to be quite the journey for me. Last year, right around this time, I rang in 100 episodes. And I was very fortunate then to have Tim Graham on with me. Tim's a sports writer, of course, I'm extremely very fond of. He had been on the podcast once before that. And he's been on one since we did that 100th episode. We had a Wings With episode last summer in Buffalo. That was a lot of fun. Anyway, that 100th episode, I had expressed how appreciative that I was to all the great guests that I've been able to get on this podcast. And of course, to all the fans out there who've been listening. And I 
very much echo those same exact sentiments again today. I'm just so elated and I'm so grateful to everyone that you continue to listen to the show. You know, I've been able to moderately continue to grow this podcast, and that's on the strength, of course, of continuing to have great guests, many athletes, many people from the sports media, had a handful of news anchors on, even had a few finalists from singing reality TV shows like The Voice and American Idol. Even got to do a few series of shows, again, where I talked about earlier with Tim. I had wings with guests, and we taped them live. Shows like with Eric Wood and Joe Biscaglia, Mike Harrington, many other people. It's been a blast, man. It really has. Great guests drive this show. And that's certainly going to continue to be the goal going forward as well for hopefully the next 100 episodes. And speaking of great guests, I really, really wanted to have Mark Polenkowers on this podcast for quite a while now. And I can promise you, not an easy task. Mark's a very busy man. One in Erie County. Very time-consuming, of course, so I was very grateful for him to be able to put aside almost a full hour for us to chat and tape this podcast. I knew plenty about Mark's career, but I knew next to nothing about him personally, and I was very determined to change that. We have a really handy conversation about a lot of things, and I'll tell you what, too. I had no idea Mark was such a big sports fan. I heard he was, but I always hear that from politicians, and then you talk sports with them, and you can tell right away they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Most definitely not the case at all with Mark. He knows the sports and he especially loves the Dodgers, which personally I found that kind of weird. Thought maybe he was just being a bandwagon hopper because, you know, the Dodgers have been good, especially over the last decade or so. They've had like seven straight division titles, been in the World Series two of the last three years, stuff like that. So I was like, all right, man, you're just liking them because they're good now. But then he pretty much ran down the entire Dodgers lineup from the late 1970s. I was like, okay, this man's not full of crap. <laughs> And he's also very knowledgeable, by the way, hockey, golf, very avid golfer. We, uh, we got into his book. We spent a little time talking about the Bills lease and their current and future stadium situation. Now, while Mark certainly wasn't speaking in any finality, it appears from talking to him that he's pretty straightforward with how the stadium situation plays out down the road. If it were up to him, uh, we do the fun little mini lightning round like I do with all guests to end the interview. Again, really good stuff with Mark. Very honored to have the Erie County Executive on my podcast. So without further ado, I've been blabbing here way too long. Here it is, my mostly, if not entirely, non-political chat with Mark Polenkars. Okay, this is really cool and definitely different for this podcast. My guest today is the Erie County Executive. Let me add also, only the second ever three-term Erie County Executive. He's also a big sports fan, and I've been looking forward to this chat for quite a while now. I'm talking, of course, about Mark Polenkars. What's going on, Mark? How you doing? I'm I'm good, Pat. Good to be here. I'm glad to have you on. Very excited to have you on. I know you're busy. We're taping this a few days before this podcast drops. Definitely some weather issues. Going on in Western New York, I know you're a big sports fan. We're going to talk some sports, talk about your book, basically anything except hard any politics. So everyone out there, if you're tuning in for that, I'm, I'm sorry, man, not happening on this podcast. I kind of want to keep my format the same, at least loosely the same anyway, and give fans a chance to learn a little bit more about Mark away from just your office and your task of being the Erie County Executive. So I'll tell you what, Mark, let's start here. Before anything else, I ask athletes or writers that are on this podcast all the time. If there was a moment, whether it was when you were a kid or in high school, college, whenever, when it really started to lock in for you that this is something that you wanted to do, public service, like with you, do you remember a time or a moment when you decided that public service was something that you may want to do with your life? I don't know if there was one particular moment, but there were many things growing up that uh, led me to the position I am right now. I, I, of course, uh, graduated high school, Lackawanna. I was raised with my uh, family, my parents. My father was a steel worker at Bethlehem Steel, Charles. My mother was a nurse at Mercy Hospital. I have two younger brothers. Uh, I, I, I saw government come to the rescue of people in, in the city of Lackawanna when Bethlehem Steel was closing its doors. And uh, that always had an, a, a very strong impression on me about how 
government and people in public service can help others in need. And it was one of the kind of the driving factors, I think, in the long run. Uh, I went to college with the University of Buffalo, graduated in four years, worked for a number of years at uh, Sears in uh, the Hamburg store that no longer exists. Oh, really? But uh, Yeah, all the Sears stores are gone now in in Western New York. But uh, worked there for a number of years. Uh, Might have sold uh, people a water heater or dehumidifier or hardware. (laughs) But I I knew that wasn't my long-term goal. It was basically to raise some money so I could then go to law school. Went to law school at the University of Toledo uh, in Ohio. Uh, Came back at a time that was a really rough time in in Buffalo's history, uh, 1997. A lot of people were moving out of this area. But I came back because I wanted to give to this community. I knew we had a great community here and and it could be so much better, but it was going through a real rough patch. Practiced law for a number of years, but then in 2005, at the height of a fiscal crisis uh, that Erie County had, uh, I decided to run for county controller, the chief financial officer, because I believed I could do better than what was going on in county government at that point. I was thankfully elected by the people of Erie County, served as controller for Six years, uh, helped clean up the mess that was the red-green fiscal crisis. And then in 2011, I ran to be the the chief executive of our community, the county executive. And the people gave me the privilege back then. And I've been lucky. I've been uh, reelected twice since then now. I'm starting the first year of my third term. And uh, we've got a lot of good things uh, on the plan for for the future to continue this great growth and revival that we see in Buffalo today. Before you grew into your career, what was your childhood like from what you can remember? What were you into? I know you're a Dodgers fan and we're going to talk about that shortly. Like, did you play sports as a kid? Who were a few of your personal favorite athletes growing up, whether it was Buffalo athletes or anywhere else that you can remember? Well, I played a lot of sports. I played baseball. I played uh, hockey. Uh, We used to play street football just like everyone else or, or find an empty lot and play football in the lot. I played tennis. I played golf. Uh, if it was a sport, I would try it. And we, we, we basically, that was our entire summer. It was just playing different sports, having fun from when we left the house in the morning till when we came home at night. Uh, it was like my, my, uh, growing up was very similar to most of the people that grew up in this area. As I said, my father worked at Bethlehem steel until it closed. And, uh, my mother was a nurse at mercy hospital. Uh, they, my mother actually raised us and then went back to school to become a nurse, uh, when I was a little older. So it was like a lot of other people. It was, uh, it was a blue collar background, but, uh, didn't have a whole lot of money, but we didn't know that. Yeah. At least I didn't know it as a kid. Right. Uh, so we just, uh, went about our business and went to public schools my entire life. I still have friends from when I, I, I grew up in Lackawanna and, uh, I think as a community, uh, we were there for each other in a time of need, and and, and I, that was a huge impact, as I said, in, in my future goals and what I felt I felt public service could do. Uh, but I was like everyone else. We'd be playing, uh, shooting hoops in the morning, playing baseball in the afternoon, uh, then going out and uh, playing street football at night, and then of course street hockey. You name it. If it if it was a sport that could be played on the street, I probably played on it at least once or twice. And, <laughs> Yeah. And I played organized hockey growing up. Uh, I was on the tennis team and the, uh, the golf team in high school. I, I, I wanted to be on the hockey team, but I actually blew out my knee when I was uh, a ninth grader and pretty much that stopped my organized hockey career at that point. But uh, just like a lot of other folks, uh, wasn't, wasn't the most exciting or different type of high school life and growing up, but it was a good one. You mentioned Lackawanna High School. I'll tell you what, there's a lot of, younger people who may be listening who are in the high school sports in Western New York right now who may not know this at all. But there was a time where Lackawanna High School was the premier small small school high school football program in all of Western New York. In fact, one of the premier programs, period, in all of the region. But anyway, getting back to this interview, can you remember when you first ran for any election, whether it was student council or whatever? I'm talking about even going all the way back to school. Do you remember that? 
truthfully, the first office I ever ran for was county controller in 2005. Oh, really? I, I actually, it's kind of funny. I, I didn't run for student council, if I remember correctly. I was in clubs and things like that. I liked politics. There's no doubt about that. I definitely like politics, but I don't, I don't think I ran for student council, though I ran my friend's campaign to be the uh, president of our class. So politics was in my blood, if not necessarily running for office, at least running other people's campaigns for office. (laughs) (laughs) And and I worked behind the scenes for many years on political races before I ran presidential races. I, I I worked on the uh, Bill Clinton races in 1992 and 1996. I worked on a couple races in 2000, Bill Bradley originally, and then Al Gore. And then 2004, I was the Western New York and Western Pennsylvania coordinator for the John Kerry campaign. So politics has been my blood for a long time. Well, let me ask you this. In public service, a big part of being successful in it is the ability to be good at public speaking. Have you always been comfortable with public speaking or was that a skill that took quite a long time for you to process and become comfortable doing? I don't think anyone's comfortable in doing that. I have to admit if my mother probably says I'm the last person she thought would enter politics because I was pretty shy growing up. I, I tell all my friends and so forth, but I was not a public speaker. It's just something you learn. If anything, uh, I came out of my shell in, in college and especially law school years. And if you're going to be a good lawyer, you've got to be a good public speaker, speaker. You got to be a good advocate. Uh, and just by the time I ran for office, I had already practiced law for a number of years. I had worked and represented a number of political campaigns, had been in front of the cameras. So at first it's, it's nerve wracking, but eventually you you just get used to it. And public speaking is like anything there, there, there are, I don't believe there are people who are born public speakers. You, you have to sort of achieve a level of comfort before you can become a good public speaker. And, And that's something that takes some time. If you could a little bit, definitely not a political question here, but about the process, could you take listeners inside what goes on getting ready for a televised debate? Like what's your prep process like? How much work goes into getting ready to go and perform on a live debate? Well, if you do it correctly, you should be uh, preparing for weeks beforehand, not just the day before. You, You should be doing practice debates with uh, members of your team representing not only the moderators throwing questions at you, but other people that are going to be debating themselves. So if, if you're, and I'm supporting Elizabeth Warren for president, if you're Elizabeth Warren, you should have your team there and you should have people standing at podiums representing Bernie Sanders and Mike Bloomberg and so on, uh, answering questions and also peppering you with questions. So when you actually get one, during the debate, it's not the first time you've heard that question right. and you, you have a, a response that you've prepared. If you go in looking like you were not prepared, it's because you were not prepared. Uh, you have to take the time necessary to uh, do the research, to have people uh, treat you like uh, it's a debate, even if it's four or five weeks before. And that's what I've always done during my debates. I've had a lot of people say, Hey, you you had a great debate. You you look so much at ease up there. And I go, well, I'm used to it by now, but it's not the first time I heard that question. And I prepared an answer based on what I believe is appropriate for this community. If you're not prepared, you're going to fail no matter how good a person you are in public speaking otherwise, uh, because debating is, is not something that uh, is, uh, is is easy to do. And if you don't practice it, you're going to look like you're out of your element. Is it still nerve wracking, regardless of how prepared you are? I mean, you could be prepared to the end of the earth, but at least maybe the first time you do it, if you can remember the first time that you were involved in a debate, was it at all nerve wracking for you? Or were you like confident in yourself that, Hey, I'm prepared. I got this and, uh, not worried about it. Well, it is nerve wracking, but as long as you feel like you're prepared, uh, I think you're going to do okay. That's generally how I felt when I walked on the stage for televised debates is, uh, I, I look at the people who are going to answer the, or ask the questions. I look at my opponents and I say, I feel like I'm better prepared than them. And if so, I'm going to do a good job. You're inevitably, you're, you're going to have to ask a question or be answered. Inevitably, you're going to have to answer a question that you really may not want to answer because they're, they're never going to ask you questions about the, the best things that you've ever done. They're going to always ask you questions about the issues that exist. And if you're not prepared to answer those questions, you're going to fail. 
So when you're preparing for a debate, you should prepare and memorize your opening. Everyone's given an opening statement and everyone's giving a closing statement. You should have memorized an opening and closing statement and you should know what you're going to say in response to the questions that are provided to you. And if you don't do that, uh, I don't care how good a public speaker are, it's going to, you're, you're going to look like you didn't prepare. And that's probably because you didn't. I mentioned at the top during our intro that you're only the second three term Erie County executive ever in Western New York. How's that make you feel? I'm pretty sure that must be a huge honor for you. Uh, you know, it, it was nice to, to have the victory and, and to have the people put their faith in me once again. Uh, I, I know the first one, Dennis Gorski, he's still alive. Uh, and, and we've talked at various times about governing Erie County. Uh, Erie County is like a small state, the same geographic size as the state of Rhode Island. It's urban, suburban, and rural. We have a population that's greater than five states. So inevitably, when you're managing a, a community this large, you're not going to have everybody like all that you do. So to be sent back uh, to his county executive for a third term, I think says a lot about the support I have in the greater community. And it, it, it is a, a privilege to serve on behalf of the people. They are given an opportunity to elect the individual they want to represent this community. They easily could have said, nope, we don't want you, and we're going to go in a different direction now. Uh, but uh, to have uh, not only been reelected uh, by a large margin in 2015, but then to win another fairly large margin in, in, in 2019 says a lot about uh, the work that we've done in county government, the direction I want to move the community, and the support I have. So it is heartening, and, it, and I don't take it for granted. Uh, I, I've, I've run against people. My first race was against uh, Chris Collins, who had previously, four years before, won by 26 percentage points. And I defeated him in, in 2011. And, and that just says that you should take nothing for granted because uh, nothing is given to you. You have to work for it and prove to the public that you are the worthy individual to represent them. And, and, and that's my mantra is do the best job that you possibly can leave the community in better shape than when you took office, keep improving the community and people will reward you for your work. I'm sure your job has a lot of challenges. And one of them I would imagine would be having to get used to having a, a very tight set schedule. Like your job probably entails a pretty strict itinerary. Days are often planned out well in advance, maybe even sometimes down to the hour. Did that take a while to get used to? Like for me, I don't know what I'm going to be doing a couple hours from now. I bet you probably have this time slotted out something like two, three weeks away from right now. Was that an adjustment for you? We will generally uh, plan my schedule two to three months in advance. Wow. Well, <laughs> maybe that's why so it busy. took, that's why it took so long to get you on. <laughs> yeah. One of the reasons yeah. uh, it, it is very busy. Uh, there are days in which it's a little slower, but a little slower doesn't mean I'm sitting around doing nothing. It just right. means I, I'm staying more in the office. I have meetings with staff. Right. Uh, but yeah, my schedule is generally set beforehand. Uh, the joke is my team knows my schedule better than I do because <laughs> I usually don't find out what I'm doing until the, the day before. <laughs> if I have an important meeting or phone call coming up, yeah, I'll know that. Right. Or like I'm traveling. Like if I'm traveling, I know I'll be traveling a particular day, but it's, it's not surprising for me to, uh, uh, get the, uh, the itinerary for my day from my assistant the night before go through a few things. And it's sometimes the first time I'm realizing I'm having this meeting or I'm talking about this subject matter or, or, Oh yes, we have this press conference. I have to go through my material. So I'm prepared for the press conference. Um, that happens a lot. Uh, and, and, and that's during a normal year. When you talk about an election year, like I had last year, well then usually I'm going from, Eight thirty, nine 9 o'clock in the morning till 9 o'clock at night. Yeah. Uh, because I'll be in the office during the workday, and then afterwards I'd be going to events and meeting people in the evening. Uh, and, and that is just something that is tough to explain. You have to be in that bubble to, to witness it. Uh, and it could, because it's, it's just very difficult because uh, every day is a new day, and you never know who that person you meet. If you're grumpy and not happy, uh, they're going to remember that, so you got to constantly – uh, keep the, the best face that you can, even if you've been working for 12 hours straight for the last. Can that be a, weeks. can that be a challenge sometimes? Because you might be tired. You might be grinded out a little bit, but yeah, you said it perfect. 
public service, especially, I would imagine you always got to be at your best because if you're not, they're going to know it. Uh, yes, it is a challenge at times. And if there are situations where it's just so bad or not feeling well, we can cancel the schedule. Sure. Uh, but there are times in which it's like, okay, if we, if we miss this event, we may not have an opportunity to, to speak in front of that group or that, that set of individuals for another year or so. So it, it does make it difficult. It, it is one of those things that you sort of deal with in public service. Uh, people like to idolize celebrities, but I mean, I'm not saying I'm a celebrity, but I know what it's like to be in the public eye and it's not always fun. Uh, I, I, I joke if I sometimes I'm going to the supermarket and somebody stops me to start complaining about something uh, and they want an answer right then, my answer is, hey, I'm just trying to get some toilet paper and milk. <laughs> uh, so, or if I'm having dinner with, with, with uh, the family and, and they're coming up and they're asking me questions while we're trying to order our dinner, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's part of the job, but there are times in which you have to say, well, I'll, I'll be glad to answer your question. Uh, can you leave me your name and number and we'll get back to you. Right. Now's not the right time, but yeah. it's part of how it goes. And, and there are times you have to bite your lip and say, okay, I'm going to be nice. Even if that person doesn't necessarily deserve it, but I'm going to be nice and I'm going to be the, the better person. And that's not easy, whether it's yourself, a lot of athletes, I'm sure they have to deal with a lot of those challenges as well. Now, as busy as you are, you're also still active on Twitter. And I mean that in a good way. I mean, you're really good at getting out, County information and sharing some personal thoughts as well, whether it's serious matters or sports talk. I see you sometimes talking sabers, especially lately, going back forth, some of the writers and stuff like that. I feel like you got a good balance on Twitter and you do a really good job, especially of avoiding getting into it with the trolls because Twitter could be a, a great thing and it could also be a really dark thing where people are just saying, really bad things because they just want to get your attention. Anyway, it's a struggle for a lot of people to avoid that. I've had many sports writers on this podcast who talk about that. You know, it, it could get to you after a while. How do you feel about Twitter as a whole? Is For you, is it a useful tool that you enjoy or is it something that you do, frankly, because in today's day and age, you kind of have to be on Twitter? Well, I, I do enjoy it. I've done it for a number of years. The trolls can be a problem. One of the greatest features that Twitter has is the mute feature. Yeah. Yeah. And mute And if somebody gets so out of line, I just mute them. So they'll see my posts, but I'll never see their posts. And, uh, and, and if somebody's trying to get me to, to attack them, it's not going to happen. I just laugh and I, I move on. Uh, I understand this business, but I do enjoy Twitter. I, I have the opportunity to get information out about county government, but as you know, I don't leave it to that. I, I do other things. I'll comment on sports. Uh, not only did I, do I still play hockey, I played hockey for almost my whole life, but I coached hockey for about 10 years. And uh, I played alongside uh, in, in pickup and other tournaments with Sabres. I've got a pretty good relationship with some of the, some of the older guys. So I, I know hockey fairly well. And I love it when I, I post something about hockey and my opinion on the Sabres. And, and the first thing I get is some idiot saying, I'll stick with politics. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> the, my first reaction is, okay, you want to get on the, the rink? Uh, <laughs> I'll be glad to get on the rink and skate with you. And yeah, Andrew Peters is a friend of mine. He showed me what it takes to be a fighter in the NHL. So if you want to drop fists, I know how to do it on skates <laughs> and stuff like that. So that's what I really like to say, but I usually just kind of laugh it off. Uh, though occasionally some of them will come to my defense and, and then they'll be like, wait a minute, you know who these guys are? I go, yeah, I do because they're good guys and I've skated with them and we talk hockey and uh, it, that's just a part of who I am. So you'll see me commenting about golf. You'll see me commenting about hockey. I, I, I will comment a little bit about the bills, uh, but I also have a direct relationship with the team because of the football stadium. Right. The same with, with the, the Pagulas with regards to the hockey arena, but I feel a little bit more in tune to comment on hockey just because of my experience there. Uh, but yeah, I'll talk about all kinds of different things. And uh, my goal is to uh, sometimes get a little snarky, but not too snarky that I'm, I'm getting criticized for it. Uh, but also to, as you say, don't feed the trolls. Right. Actually, I don't mind. I don't mind throwing something out and having the trolls attack me. Uh, and sometimes I'll, I'll post some things that I know that they won't like but I, I won't engage in a conversation with them. You just can't win. Right. It, it, you, you have no idea who you're communicating with because most of them are anonymous and there's no benefit to it. You can't win in it. So they can say whatever they want. 
occasionally I'll get a little snark back to them, but nothing bad. And, uh, in the end, uh, if you engage and try to fight with them, you're just never going to win. So there's no benefit to it. Yeah, I agree. A hundred percent. Let's transition to a little bit of sports talk here. Now this kind of took me back a little bit. You're a longtime Dodgers fan, right? You grew up in Lackawanna. How does that happen? Sunny LA, baby. <laughs> Sunny LA. Well, no, I grew up, well, I grew up in the seventies and at that point, uh, actually my father is a Yankees fan. Uh, my brother, Rob, who's younger than me is a Yankees fan, but I always liked the Dodgers. You had Ron say on, on third, uh, Bill Russell at shortstop, Davey Lopes at second, Steve, Steve Garvey, Garvey, Steve Yeager. Yeah. You had the whole team. You had Bert Hooten on the mound with, uh, with a whole bunch of others and, and, and good teams. Uh, Reggie Smith, Dusty Baker. Everyone knows Dusty Baker is oh, a yeah. manager, but Dusty Baker was one hell of an outfielder yeah. uh, during those years. So I grew up a Dodgers fan. I've always been a Dodgers fan. I've, it's the only team I root for that's ever won the big one. And they won it twice. Yeah. It's been a long time since they won it, but of all the teams I root for, it's the only one that's ever won the world series or, or the, the championship, so to speak. So I know it can be done. <laughs> the Sabres and the Bills will get there someday. And, and I know it can be done because the Dodgers have done it. Well, you just spoke of championships. Speaking of, I, I got to assume that you're pretty infuriated more than the average baseball fan over what happened with the Houston Astros cheating scandal. That, that maybe might have cost the Dodgers a World Series in 2017. Strip the Astros of the championship. Yeah. Simple as that. They do not deserve to have that World Series. Uh, should the Dodgers be awarded? I don't know, but I'd love to see them, but I win, but there's no way that the Astros should be listed as the world series champs in that year. They cheated. Yeah. And the argument is, Oh, there's always cheating in sports, but this was a coordinated team effort to, to steal, uh, victories. Clayton Kershaw is a phenomenal pitcher. Yeah. Phenomenal pitcher. He's not the most overpowering pitcher, but he's got one heck of a slider and a curveball when it's on, he's unhittable. And yet, if you look back in that World Series, all they were doing was swinging at his sliders and his curveballs. And I'm thinking to myself, how the heck are they hitting this? No one else can do it. Now we know why. They knew what was coming. And major leaguers, if they know what pitch is coming, they're going to hit it, even if it's a, a Kershaw curveball or slider. And uh, it just goes to show that uh, in that sport, the hitters are so good that if they know a fastball's coming or a slider's coming, they can hit it. If they don't know what's coming and you've got a great pitcher against them, they're going to get shut down. So I look at it from top to bottom. They, uh, they knew what they were doing. It was a coordinated effort by the team. The Astros should be stripped of the championship. And, and personally, I believe individuals uh, should be suspended. If you think what Pete Rose did, which is uh, betting on his own team was bad, and that resulted in a lifetime ban, then think about a coordinated effort by a team to win games and steal the championship away from other teams, whether it's the pennant or the World Series. Uh, individuals should be suspended at least for a year. And, and I think the commissioner should do that to send a message to the rest of the teams, this is not acceptable. You mentioned Clayton Kershaw. I saw a stat that 51 sliders and curveballs were thrown by Kershaw in that world series and the Houston Astros had zero swinging strikes. They, they made contact. Obviously they knew what was coming and the, a pitcher as great as he is to 51 swings and to make contact 51 times is kind of outlandish. It, it really is. That's crazy. It's, it, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, the sliders coming just the same speed or a little less than a fastball and if it's moving and his slider is ridiculously good, yeah. <laughs> if it's moving, it, it should be pretty damn near impossible to hit. Uh, and that's what his ERA has always been. How guys are hitting it and they're not missing it is there's only one way that we know that. And that's because they were cheating. It comes down to this. An asterisk isn't good enough. They, they can put an asterisk in the, in the record book, but that's not good enough. They should be stripped of the title. And if possible, they could, and then the record should say the note uh, world series was, was awarded and the team it was stripped from the Houston Astros for cheating. That's what should be in the record book. I agree a hundred percent. Now, at least you did get to taste one world series victory for the Dodgers back in 88. Is it been kind of heartbreaking in a way 
Because, yeah, sure, they're good. I mean, they've won their, their division seven straight times. They've been to playoffs seven straight years. A couple World Series losses in 2017, which we just talked about, and also 2018 as well. Is it, I'm, I don't know, going back maybe to the early 90s when the Bills at the Super Bowl, the four straight Super Bowl losses, you know what's, you, you were able to brace yourself a little bit, but it still has to be somewhat heartbreaking. Again, it's good to root for a team that is consistently good and perennially a contender, but at the same token, they get to the playoffs seven straight years and haven't got it done. It's got to be tough too, I would imagine. Well, it's tough. I've actually seen two World Series for the Dodgers. I'm old enough to remember. Actually, I was a young teenager in 81 with Fernando Mania. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yep. I, I, I remember that. And of course, Kirk Gibson's shot that was heard around the world. I think I yelled so loud I woke up half the neighborhood when that happened. Uh, but yeah, it's tough to see them go that many years in the playoffs to make it to the world series that many times and to come up that close. It's not like they got blown out on those world series. And then to find out afterwards, the Astros were cheating. Yeah. Uh, I, I know a few, there's not a lot of Dodgers fans in, in Buffalo and in Western New York, but the, the few of us there are, we, we commiserate on that. And, uh, it, it's, it's tough because you, you know, you got a great team, you know, they're capable of winning and the Dodgers have constantly retooled their lineup. So it, it's, it's, it's impressive when you think about how many times they've continued, they've been back, they've been division winners. They've made to the championship with all these different lineups and then they come up a little short. That's why I say, I'm glad I've seen two world series victories because I know it's possible. Uh, but, uh, just, thinking about what happened with regards to the Astros. And there's still some questions about the Red Sox themselves. Uh, I, I, am hoping that we, if we get to the world series this year, and I think we have just a good enough team to get back to the world series. Uh, we don't, we're never gonna have to worry about any potential cheating scandals and things like that. That's why I think, that's why I think it's important for the commissioner to act appropriately right. and suspend players so that others know, well, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to, have that black mark on my record, but for a lot of these folks, that may not even matter. What matters more is the loss of income from being suspended for a whole season or more. Well, I'll tell you what, like your father, I grew up a Yankees fan. I still very much am a Yankees fan, but I do respect the Dodgers in that they're an aggressive team. I mean, they are always trying to win that season. They're always buyers. They're barely ever sellers. Huge trade this offseason. They get Mookie Betts, easily one of the best players in baseball. Now you're talking about an outfield Mookie Betts, Cody, Be Cody Bellinger, which, oh my God, he's one of my favorite players in baseball right now. Not to mention AJ Pollock, that in outfield is ridiculous. Plus, they got good players in infield too. Seager, Turner, Muncie, they're no slouches either. This team seems really stacked again. And Mookie Betts, I mean, him and Bellinger in the same outfield, those po quite possibly are two of the five best players in baseball right now. And they're playing in the same outfield. Yeah, when I was heard about the trade and how it was potentially coming, I was like, oh boy, this could be really good. Uh, I know Red Sox fans are furious. Right. And not only do we end up with uh, Mookie Betts, you got David Price in that trade too. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and while his record up until recently had been poor in the postseason, the last few years he's actually been pretty good in the postseason. So I look at it this way. They're going to continue to do what it takes to win the World Series by beating teams on the field with their team rather than beating garbage cans like other teams do. Well, let's switch to golf here for a few minutes here. We talked hockey. You're a huge golf fan. You talked about it earlier. You still play, including the course, of course, South Park course in Lackawanna. I know that course very well. I played it many times. What got you interested in golf originally? Because it wasn't always the popular sport that it is today. In fact, growing up, golf was probably it definitely wasn't mainstream sport for you that it is now. So what got you interested in playing golf originally? Uh, I, as I said, I pretty much played everything. And I had a friend, uh, Michael Gressinger, whose father was a golfer and he gave us some old clubs and, and we got some balls and we're just bashing them around the old lot behind our playground. And I, and I just liked it. I, you know, I, I always liked the uh, idea of this. You can't blame anyone else yeah. for a poor golf shot. Uh, it's you against mother nature. And yeah, you're going to get bad breaks. That's part of the game of golf. And it truly took me a, a while to appreciate that. I maybe didn't appreciate it as much in my teenage years, but uh, <laughs> in the end, when you shoot a good round, it's you shooting a good round. When you shoot a bad round, it happens and you just got to shake it off. And, some of my best rounds of golf, I mean, I played fabulous rounds and then come back the next day and I don't have anything. I'm like, oh my God, what happened? Well, that's, you were in the zone one day and you weren't the next. 
And you, you know, I, I grew up on the South Park course in, in South Buffalo slash Lackawanna. My father's still a member there. I'm still a member there. Uh, I'm also a member at Cragburn, but I, you, you, there's a good chance you'll catch me golfing at South Park just as much as at Cragburn. And uh, I just love the, the sport because uh, no matter what you do, there's always the, a new day. So if you have a bad round, you can come out the next day and shoot a great round. And uh, it's the, you can never be perfect. I mean, you can throw a perfect game in bowling. Uh, a pitcher can throw a perfect game in baseball. But you will never have a perfect game in golf. There's always something that is not going to go 100% right, even in your best round. And I've always found that uh, appealing. And then, to tell you the truth, I can sometimes do my best thinking on a golf course, especially if I'm later in the evening mm-hmm. playing, playing with a buddy. Uh, I've, I've actually thought through some issues and things I've had to deal with and and government and politics and getting away on the golf course for like nine holes for two hours and, and just playing and relaxing, but also thinking about what I've got to deal with has also helped me too. Cause you got to get out of the bubble of work. You got to get out of the bubble of politics and, and you need that uh, relaxation, but also sort of the release from it all. And I've, I'd like to think some of my smarter decisions have been made on a golf course just thinking about some of the stuff I've had to deal with by just relaxing for a couple hours, not having people constantly beat you down uh, and just having an opportunity to say, you know, that's the right decision to take and, and, and then to, to go with it. I think that golf is the ultimate balancing sport, no matter what way you look at it. You can go on a course and you could play terrible, butcher the entire course up and you still hit those one or two really good shots to give you enough encouragement and hope that you want to go back out the next time because you feel like you're definitely going to shoot a better round. Or conversely, on the other hand, you could be playing a great round, the round of your life, and then you get to one or two holes and you completely butcher them and it screws up your entire round. It really has a way of humbling you. Golf does, has a way of humbling you. Like I said, it's a really good balancing act. So anyway, when it comes to golf, who are favorite, who are a few, I should say, of your favorite golfers, past or present? Oh, growing up, I mean, I like Chevy Ballesteros. He was basically a magician. He could pretty much get out of anywhere. My father used to joke and call me Chevy when I was growing up because I had a pretty good short game and I'd be in trouble stuck under a tree having to hit a, uh, I'm right-handed having to hit a shot left-handed and somehow I'd pull it off. Mm -hmm. But then he always was just like Chevy. I was wild and hit it everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I like Chevy. I like Tom Watson. Uh, it was interesting growing up, uh, especially Tiger's a little younger than me and seeing this, this, this guy come out and just be absolutely incredible, so much better than everyone else. And how can someone have that much talent? But we also know for Tiger, it just wasn't talent. He worked, he worked harder than anyone else. He was willing to put in the hours. Uh, so for me, it was like, I, I liked watching and seeing how it, 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 there were certain players I wanted to see win, but there were others that'd be like, okay. Uh, the, the journeyman who comes out of nowhere and wins a tournament is a great story just as much as Tiger winning his 50th tournament. Uh, someone who may never win again, but for one week just had an incredible week and uh, beat the rest of the world. And, and that in itself just goes to prove that in golf, anything can happen where a Nolan Hankey can win a tournament. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a guy like that who wins one or two tournaments coming out of nowhere never be heard from again, but you look at it in one week, he was the greatest player in the world for that one week. Uh, Andy North won two U.S. Opens and one other tournament, but he's always remembered for being the best golfer in the world uh, by winning two U.S. Opens. Uh, and whatever happened elsewhere, we'll always remember that the guy for one week out of the year was the best player in the world, and he just happened to do it during the week that the U.S. Open was held. That's pretty impressive. It is. And is Tiger Woods to you the most dominant athlete during his prime that you've probably have ever seen in any sport? Is it him or do you think it might be someone else? Uh, Tiger definitely during his prime. I mean, I'm not old enough to remember Jack in his prime. Uh, maybe Wayne, maybe Wayne Gretzky in hockey. Yeah. Yeah. Gretzky could, could, could defeat a team basically on his own. Yeah. Four straight cups for sure. Yeah, I mean, he had a great complement of players around him, but in his prime, he was so incredible. But yeah, I think on a one-on-one sport, it has to be Tiger. I mean, you look at tennis today, and you've got Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, all these incredible careers, 
and they all happened at the same time. You look at Tiger's career, he had like Phil Mickelson is going to go down as one of the greatest players in golf history. And you think about how many tournaments he would have won if Tiger had not been around. Yeah. But Tiger, Tiger was going up against Phil. He was going up against Ernie Els. He was going up against BJ Singh. All these other players that were incredible players on their own, and he still dominated. I just, it's, it's hard to fathom that for 15 years he basically seemed to win everything, but he did because he, he was just outworking them and outplaying them. And, and I know in other sports and team sports it's tough to compare, but uh, I can't think of anybody who was as dominant as he was. I got to tell you, Mark, I'm incredibly impressed by your sports knowledge. A lot of times politicians will be out there saying, well, I love sports. I love this, but they really, they don't know anything. It's very clear that you do. I'm very, I'm really impressed by it. I, I truly am. Tell listeners a little bit about the book you wrote, Beyond the X's and O's, Keeping the Bills in Buffalo. Uh, the summary says, described as an inside account of the negotiations between the football bills, New York State and Erie County to sign a long-term stadium lease and thereby keep the team in Buffalo. What was the, the inspiration to do the book and tell fans listening a little bit about it. And by the way, I'll put a link to it as well in the show notes. Thank you. Uh, and, you know, the idea behind it was it took us a good year and a half to reach a final negotiated agreement with the Buffalo bills in New York state to keep the team in town. And uh, there were a lot of people who were involved in the negotiation that the public's never heard of, or at least didn't hear of until I wrote the book. And, and there were times during the negotiations when the negotiations fell apart. Even after we announced the deal, uh, we, we had a time in which the negotiations had fallen apart. It was not an easy deal to get. And what I wanted to do is sort of let others know about how difficult it was to also identify the individuals who played a key role. Uh, but to remind folks that it was not a given that the bills were going to stay in the town. Ralph Wilson always said he was going to keep the team in his town through his life. And he honored that commitment. But during the time we were negotiating with Ralph, I mean, he was in his nineties. Yeah. He could have died at any moment. And if he had died, it would not be the Buffalo bills anymore. The team would have been sold with no restrictions whatsoever. Uh, the lease would have expired. A new owner would have said, I'm not keeping the team in Buffalo. So we were under the gun worrying about getting a lease done before Mr. Wilson passed. And why does it matter? Well, ask the people in San Diego, Ask the people in St. Louis why it matters to have a strong lease in place that keeps the team in town because the San Diego chargers are now the Los Angeles chargers. The uh, St. Louis Rams are now the Los Angeles Rams. And for that matter, ask the people in Oakland because the Oakland right. Raiders are now the Las Vegas Raiders. And I guarantee you, if we had not gotten a good lease that kept this team in town through his death, uh, we would have lost the team. Now the Pagulas de definitely deserve a lot of credit for helping to keep the team in town. But uh, even then, we by putting a strong lease in place with was a $400 million penalty clause if the team was moved, it kept a lot of potential buyers that were interested in buying the team and moving it to Toronto or Los Angeles from actually bidding on the team at all. Uh, talking to Russ Brandon, and it's noted in the book, uh, there were quite a number of parties that kicked the tires for the team when it was up for sale. Uh, but that walked away and were not interested in, in putting in a bid for the team because their goal was to move it. And they knew they couldn't move it because of the strong lease provisions. So for me, it was getting that story out about how we achieved it. And for everyone who thinks, oh, it was easy. I just remind them it took 18 months. Even after we announced that we had a, a deal in concept, the memorandum of understanding in December of 2012, we couldn't close the deal until May of 2013 because there was so much more work to do and it fell apart in the meantime. And I just thought it made a good story and uh, I appreciate you putting the plug in. We've uh, have sold not a, not a ton of books, but I've sold quite a few and had a lot of people come up to me, ask me for uh, my, my signature and autograph on the book and uh, just thank me for the work that we did to keep the bills in town. And, 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 and that's uh, rewarding. Well, it's definitely a fascinating tale and even removing your career, your job, from all of it, just growing up, spending pretty much your entire life in Western New York and being a Bills fan, how important was it for you on a personal level for this team to stay in Buffalo? Well, it was huge. I mean, as I noted in the, the book, my first game that I went to was a New York Jets game that my father took me 
to in 1980, I've always been a Bills fan. Uh, I know the impact that this has on the community, and I certainly did not want to be the county executive who lost the Bills. <laughs> right. So we negotiated a fair deal. We, we negotiated hard. We, we, we didn't just roll over. Uh, we, we, uh, we negotiated a fair deal, but I knew it was important to keep this team in town for so many different reasons. And I'm glad we accomplished that. And here we are now in, uh, 2020 and I am the County executive through 2023. And what happens at the end of 2023? The lease lease expires. (laughs) Yeah. So, so we're, we're going to be negotiating with the team again, uh, regarding keeping them in town. Everyone says, Oh, it's a new stadium. And the answer is, it might be, it might not be, it might be a further renovation of the current facility, but that's all part of the negotiations that we're going to enter into. That's going to be very interesting. And that's probably the, the biggest topic that fans ask me all the time. If I say I'm going to have somebody on and we're talking bills, who's in the kind of position like that you are, for example, is the team going to stay in Orchard Park? Is the team going to build a new stadium downtown? Obviously it's way too early to know that definitively. Have you made like public comments on it? one way or the other on which site you prefer or, uh, you know, have you given a lot of thoughts to the possibility of that going either way? Well, I, I don't negotiate in public, but, uh, I have said that, uh, I don't see a reason why we could not continue to use the new facility or the current facility. If, uh, if certain other renovations were put in place, uh, everybody wants to say, Hey, build a new football stadium. But the one thing that they forget is it's not cheap. Right. Uh, current, the NFL stadiums are, are $2 billion plus, and that's billion with a B. And to give you an example, the Erie County budget for all my 30 departments and the 5,000 employees we have is 1.8 billion. Uh, so it would roughly cost more than my entire budget to build a football stadium. So uh, I have to take into account many things, uh, not just you build a new stadium because the owner wants a new stadium. You have to do what's right for the community. And uh, we'll negotiate. We'll negotiate fairly. Uh, we I don't negotiate in public, so as we're going along, I'm not going to go and say, "Here's where we are in the negotiations," or "Here's what I'm demanding." We'll do a fair negotiation. But uh, as, as I've said before, uh, there are other stadiums the same age or older than uh, the current one. Arrowhead was open the same year as the field was. And uh, of course, Soldier Field is, is much older. Lambeau Field is much older. And, and they've been kept in the business because they've all had significant renovations. And there's no reason why we can continue to do that at the stadium in Orchard Park. I agree 100%. All right, Mark. So here's what we're going to do. I wrap up every interview the same way. I do a little mini lighting round. And all I'm going to do is ask you a handful of like random questions, like kind of like rapid fire stuff. Not a lot of deep thought required. Whatever the first thing that pops in your head. That'll be your answer. And some of these are kind of colorful questions. It ain't about politics and it ain't about sports and stuff like that. So you good to go? Sure. All right. Well, actually, the first one is I lied to you. So favorite all-time athlete, if you can only pick one. Oh, that's tough. It is. Uh, I, I don't know if I can because I have favorites in like all sports. But uh, I don't know. I that, That's a tough one, a favorite all-time athlete. All right. You're probably the answer favorite all-time elected official than uh, athlete. <laughs> <laughs> all right, fair enough, man. What's your favorite city that you visited? Uh, you know, there's so many cool ones, but one I could always go back to is St. Andrews, Scotland. Been there twice, played the old course twice. It's oh, wow. A, it, 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 you, if, if you've never been there and you're a golfer, you have to do the pilgrimage at least once. Everyone is so happy that is visiting because they're all there for the golf course. And it, uh, I, I could go back to St. Andrews every year and be quite happy. The people are nice in Scotland. The food's great. Uh, so I'm probably St. Andrews. All right. Next one will be, uh, what is your go-to snack? Middle of the night, go-to snack. Oh, that's a problem. Cause I'll eat a lot of stuff, but, uh, <laughs> uh, d- I have a unfortunate sweet tooth for chocolate. So anything that's chocolate will generally, uh, I'll, I'll eat. Okay. What movie have you probably rewatched more than any other? Like what's your favorite rewatchable movie that you can watch time and time again? Probably star Wars. The first one, I've probably watched that more than anything. And I, if, if it's on television tonight, I'll watch it again. Okay. 
Uh, name a TV game show that you feel like if you were on it right now, you could potentially dominate it, whether it's a current game show or a past game show from growing up. Something you wish you were mm. on, you think you could win it. I don't know. I used to be a big Jeopardy fan. And whenever it's on TV now, if I'm, I generally don't watch it because I'm just running around so much. But if I see it, I'll, I'll sit there and I'll, uh, I, I know I have a lot of useless knowledge. So there's, there's a lot of useless knowledge, Cliff Clavin like that uh, I think could, could be useful in Jeopardy. Okay, last couple here. So right now I'm in Florida. You're in Western New York. We're doing this interview right now via phone. Let's pretend we were at one of the many great karaoke bars in Buffalo right now, okay? And in this world, Mark Polenkars is an amazing singer, right? You're going to grab the mic and you're going to sing a song and the crowd's going to get into it, start singing along. What karaoke song do you think you could rock out that would get the crowd going? Well, as you note that, actually, I used to be a singer and played in a band, Hawking the Doves. And this past year, I sang Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire at our senior picnic uh, while playing the guitar, and, and they seemed to enjoy it. So uh, my father was a big Johnny Cash fan. I grew up a big Johnny Cash fan, a big Beatles fan, but uh, everybody loves Johnny Cash, so I'd have to go with that. Okay, last two here. We talked about Twitter earlier. Who's your favorite Twitter follow? Like if you were only allowed to follow one person on Twitter and all the rest could go away, you can have a million followers. That don't matter. But you're only following one person or one handle on Twitter. What one would it be? Uh, so, you know, that's tough because I, I didn't want to follow one for politics, government, sports. Uh, if I had nothing else to choose from, uh, probably the Los Angeles Dodgers Twitter feed. Okay. Last one here. This is the same one I ask every guest. I know it's not easy sometimes, but you could have three dinner guests from any era, dead or alive in history, celebrities, musicians, athletes, whatever. It doesn't matter. You could have three people at your house tonight for dinner, couple drinks. Who would you have? Well, one would definitely be FDR, Franklin Roosevelt. Okay. Uh, I, I certainly would have loved to have an opportunity to talk to him. Uh, Going in the sports, I never did get an opportunity to shake his hand. So Arnold Palmer, okay, I'd like to have Arnie there. Okay, and uh, thinking about other individuals who would be really cool to sit down and talk to and and have there, uh, Shakespeare, Shakespeare at the Iron Arnold Palmer. Perfect, perfect, perfect. All right, everyone, give Mark a follow on Twitter at Mark Poland Cars. Check out the book, Beyond the X's and O's, Keeping the Bills in Buffalo. Again, I'll put a link to that as well in the show notes. Again, Mark, I know you're a busy guy. Plan this out for a while. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. It was fun having you on. It's my pleasure, Patrick. And congratulations on your 200th episode. All right, everyone. That is going to do it for this episode. Very, very big thank you again. Mark Polenkars, the Erie County Executive. Can't thank Mark enough. That was really cool. Mark's a good dude, man. I really like him a lot. I could totally see why now he's a three-term Erie County Executive. Very personable. Far more personable than I thought it was going to be going into this interview. Thank you again, Mark. Really cool. Guys, if you have not yet done so already, and now I've done 200 of these episodes... We ain't going nowhere. You may as well do it. Subscribe to this podcast. You can catch us on Google Play, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, you name it. Pretty much anywhere future award-winning podcasts are found. When you subscribe, you're going to get new episodes before anyone else does. we got new shows every Tuesday, every Friday. So again, subscribe, please. Also, rate and review really helps me continue to grow this podcast tremendously. Also, next time you're on YouTube, hit up the Moranalytics Podcast YouTube channel. Got highlight clips from past and current episodes up there. Going to start having more and more original audio content that you'll only find there on the YouTube channel. Won't hear it anywhere else. Not even as podcasts. So again, Moranalytics Podcast on YouTube. Then, of course, last but not least, follow me on Twitter at Tweets. I'm parked there. I'm on Twitter virtually every day, tweeting out podcast updates, upcoming guests, promos, prize pack giveaways, all kinds of stuff like that. At Pamoran Tweets. And I, I had every podcast the same way. I really, 
really want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. Again, 200 episodes. Maybe it don't mean a lot to you, but it means an awful lot to me. So very grateful, very humble. You're taking time from your busy day. You're listening to this in the gym, the car, the office, home. I don't really care. Wherever you're doing it, keep doing it because it means the world to me. So thank you very much. Have a good rest of the week. God bless. Talk to you on Friday. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.